So I think this is a, a, a common question today. I think that it is uh, something that we've all probably, all of you have probably been asked at some point, and I think it relates very well to the topic. It says, how do you answer a, non, a non-believer who asks, why do fully committed Christians suffer bad things? Why do fully committed Christians suffer bad things? Some of you touched on it through your, through your story, but I think uh, hitting it directly I think would be helpful, so anybody can kick it off. Yeah, I'll go. So I think that most of us inherently um, believe in a God of karma. Uh, we, our, our hearts naturally lean toward God as a God of karma. Um, we have a really hard time wrapping our minds around a God of, uh, who doesn't operate that way. Um, and so I think we think if you do good things, then God does good things for you, and that's how it works because God is a God of karma. And um, when in reality, uh, that's not the way God operates at all. Um, I would also share that um, in the beginning, if we were to follow the Genesis narrative, uh, God told Adam and Eve, hey, uh, you know, the whole world is yours in joy, but don't eat from that tree, because if you do, it's going to suck. And then they ate from that tree, and then it sucked. And I feel like we have this tendency to, like, hold God's feet to the fire on that, like, God, what are you doing? It sucks. And I feel like God's kind of like, yeah, I told Adam and Eve back that you eat from that tree. It's going to suck. It's going to bring about death. It's going to bring about chaos. It's going to bring about terrible things that you don't want. And um, So I would just share that, you know, yeah, when God said that death will enter the world when you eat the fruit, like, and then they ate the fruit and God is a God of his word. It happened. And I don't know what we're getting all bitter with God about. Like he said, it was going to suck. Sometimes it sucks. You know, I don't know. So I'm not sure that that's the best way to lead someone to Jesus, but I do think it's true. Um, I do think it's true. So <laughs> it's a good start at least. It's a, yeah, it's a, yeah. It's not the whole yeah. story, but yeah. 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 There's a, there's a couple things that I think of when I think of that question. Um, one, there's a line from C.S. Lewis that comes to mind uh, where somebody asked him the same thing, and, and his response was, you know, I, I think it's rather not, you know, why do some suffer, but why do some seem not to? And it was more just a, a poke at everybody suffers. And I think sometimes we want to be comparative in our suffering and level it, and, you know, this this is a worse thing than this was. And so, I, and I think there there are legitimate real heartaches, and I think we all shared some version of that in our stories of the heartaches that we've experienced. Um, and then, so that's not to diminish or lessen the pain that any person goes through. Um, but there was a moment, you know, during my wife and I's 10 year wait for children where I sort of went after God like that too. And I was like, God, like I've done this and this and this and this and this and this, like you were talking about, how, how dare you do this to me essentially. And it was one of the most kind moments, um, almost like God does with Job at one point of, you know, where were you? Um, and he sort of turned the question around on me as a classroom teacher for 16 years. And he's like, John, how dare you inflict such pain on kids, tests in class where they feel like they're a moron, where they feel like a failure. How dare you create an environment where they suffer, where they don't just get what they want? How dare you create, like, you know, he, he didn't belabor the point. It was one of those like momentary things that just expand in your mind and you're like, I never thought of it because then I start to shift to, I understand why that environment exists. I understand why that educational environment exists because it's a, it's a development place. It's, it's actually a safe place of development where failure is not actually failure, it's feedback. Where pain is still pain, but it's not lasting pain. 
And, and it was just, it was such a helpful reorientation for me of the way that I want to look at my discomfort isn't actually real. It doesn't lessen the pain, but it changes the lens through which I look at it. You know, um, for myself, I do think a lot depends on who's asking the question and how open they are. Uh, you know, my answer is going to depend very widely based on how you know open I perceive this person is to hey, or do you want <clears throat> you know, do you really want to have this dialogue, um, and, or are you just like, well, I don't believe in God because this, um, and I found most of the time when I'm when when people are coming to me and asking that question in a real genuine way, you ask. You know, I I just ask them a little bit about their own story, and nine times out of ten, it's man, these are the hard things that happen in my life, and I don't know how to process God in this moment because these are the things that happen to me. I mean, you look at why people don't believe in God, and it, it most of the time it comes down to one of two main things. I want to do what I want to do. There's some sin in my life, and I don't want to give up that sin. Um, or this pain has happened in my life, and I don't know how to process that pain. Um, and so a lot of times people have asked me that question, and then I kind of turn and like, hey, well, can, can I just hear a little bit of your story, a little bit of your heart? Why, like, why are you asking that question? And then it opens up this, this can of, hey, these are the hard things. And then when they're sharing about those hard things, yeah, there's a lot of times where I'm talking about, man, there is this, there's some suck of the world. This is, this is hard. Um, this is the reality uh, of being in a, sinful, in a sinful, fallen, broken world. Um, and then I would remind them of the truth of what Jesus Christ has done for us. But while I'm in that sinful, broken, messed up junk of a world, um, the God of the universe chose to send his one and only son to live a perfect life and to die for me. So... I don't, I don't know much to add. You guys did a fantastic job, by the way, all three of you. Congratulations. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I agree with everything that was said there. I think it's not a simple, there's not one answer. You know, uh, is it, you know, are bad things happening bad things, right? What is a bad thing? Well, it depends on your perspective, right? You know, we go back to the story of Joseph, right? Oh, you know, having your brothers chuck, chuck in a well, bad thing. Well, it depends on your perspective. If you could see things from God's perspective, maybe not. Um, you know, what is discipline, right? There's, there's uh, responsive discipline, right? When I do something wrong, I get disciplined lovingly by God to bring me back onto the right path. There's also proactive discipline. God is trying to build something into my life, and that building something into my life involves the loving application of pain to bring about growth, right? So it, it really, I think it, it's, it's not, like these guys are saying, it's not this one thing. I think what Aaron pointed to is you need, we need to ask we need to go deeper. We need to ask the question. We need to begin to understand what's going on in that person's life. Where's this question coming from? Um, because all those things are true, but it depends on which situation you're, you're addressing. Thanks, guys. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Sorry. I just want to add one more thing because I feel like mine – I want to actually complete this, this cycle, right? Because I feel like we've actually kind of started in the beginning and worked our way toward the cross, which is really interesting. Um, and it, I would also say, particularly if we're talking to a nonbeliever, right, like they're asking, like, is Christianity legit? Like, is it worth it? And I think uh, – 
fixing them with a gospel perspective, like like the the core message of our faith, like the core of the Christian faith, is that the very worst thing happened to the very best person for the purpose of our redemption, right? And so I think that you just you, I mean, you beeline for that, and it like reframes the whole thing for them, right? Like, oh, that's yeah. I'm wondering why do Christians suffer? Yeah, well, why did their their savior suffer, right? And so, um, yeah, I think that would that's a helpful way to reframe that for a non-believer too. So. No one thinks about that when they think about being conformed to the image of Christ, right? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that puts a different, different spin on things. Conformity into Christ means comfort in Christ, right? <laughs> yeah. that, that's sure. what that word that's means, what right? Mean. In Christ, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you know, when you think of um, the Apostle Paul in Acts 9, you know, God says to Ananias, I want you to go to, to Saul and after he kind of argues with God for a second, you know, you know who that is, right? He's the guy that's been causing all these problems. You know, then God says to Ananias, I need you to, sh- I need to show him what he will suffer for my name. Saul hadn't even signed on the dotted line yet. He was still confused. He was still blinded. And I think, you know, having been in ministry for 25 years at the very 25 years ago, at the beginning, kind of in a, in a leading place when I was at McLean and the kind of the seeker-sensitive movement, I think that part of the challenge is that we have compromised in some measure the presentation of the gospel. We minimize the suffering part and we maximize the what you're going to get if you come to Jesus part. And we have led, we have, we have a generation that's growing up believing that if I give my life to Jesus and I serve sometimes and I give my money and I stay away from the big sins, then God's going to give me the life that I want. You know, he's going to give me the Christian version of the American dream. And that's not the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lack of theology of suffering in the gospel that we have, the church, not just we here, but the American church has preached over the last several decades because we don't want it to sound bad. We, we were much more attractional. We want to, you know, our marketing strategy to get people in has begun to lack the element of, of suffering and the role. What did you say? The, the application, the proper application. The, the loving of, application of pain. The, the loving application of pain. I like that. Um, and I think that that's when people look they, they, to, to connect Jesus and suffering together. And Mike, what you said is, I think, awesome. Thank you for saying that. All right, next question. It says, you have all shared unexpected moments and periods in your life. What practical things did you do to help you through that period? You know, we would say we go through difficult periods and then there maybe there's some redemption to that pain. There's some clarity. There's a, a turning of a corner. Before you get there, that, that kind of, a history, being able to look back and go, oh yeah, God, thank you. In that confusing moment, those those period of time, the period of time where it's confusing, it's difficult, whatever. How did you? What did you do to journey through that time when when what God was doing kind of hadn't come to clarity yet? Um, this is several of the things that we were talking about at our table, um, but I, I feel like when when I'm when I was in the series season with my wife being sick, right? Um, I needed to do do several things in the middle of that to keep myself sane, right? Um, just some great counsel that I got from Paul Goodnight, um, who many of you know. Uh, and the time was like, well, Aaron, what are what are the things that that you need that refresh you, that keep you going, that keep you 
that, that keep you sane, that keep you grounded in God and his word. And like, those are the wells that you need to keep going towards and, and spending time in. And, um, you know, when I'm in a just different series, seasons of, of uncertainty and whatever, like, the, like I've got my things that, that I just I find a lot of refreshment and joy in. Um, you know, it, it was some practical things. You know, it, uh, when when my wife was sick, we we just had to have a lot of like really clear communication. This is something Paul and I talked a lot about. Um, just a lot of really clear communication of hey. Uh, sometimes when you're talking to your wife and 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 she asks you the you're you're talking about like your schedule and things like that. She's like, well, it's okay if you miss this, right? Uh, like it's okay. You can do you take care of that and. She doesn't really. Mean, she really actually wants you at the event, but she won't tell you that she wants you at the event. Or you know, I don't know if you've ever had situations like that. And I was like, look, like at this at this season of our journey, like we can't have that. If you want me here, I just need you to say I need you here. I can't have like the waffle. And then the same on the same token, I needed to be bold and say, look, I, like I know this is hard. I need I need some time to just get some space, whatever. Um, and Colin, Colin, our, we had a great, great support group of, of people backing us up. Um, but that clear communication with my wife, um, say, hey, this is, these are the things that I need to do to, to, to stay sane. Um, some great brothers that, you know, that, that she saw, hey, Aaron, you need to go hang out with them for a few hours. You need to go spend a few t spend some time with the Lord so that you can come back and you can invest in our family so that you can be here emotionally, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I just, I see, I feel it's really easy as men when the hard things are coming in life. We're just like, okay, I'm just going to buckle down. I'm going to lead through this. I'm going to, you know. And even we need times of refreshment. We need to, like we need time to to renew so that we can we can do that. It, it reminds me of the story of, of of Jonathan and when Saul gave the order, "Don't eat any honey," and he's like, oh, "Man, I I was famished. I needed some honey so I can keep going." And there's times where we need to uh, take a break, get some refreshment, so that we can keep going. So. Yeah, I, I, the thing I would add to that is, um, you know, a lot of times we, we, you know, if we read the Psalms or we read Ecclesiastes, you read some of these things and you hear people, the great men of God, who seem to be just really ticked at God. And they're letting loose, you know. I mean, Jesus, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, um, I think if you read those and it makes you feel uncomfortable when you read that, it means you're probably not, you don't, you're not feeling that liberty with your heavenly father um, and you should and I know for me like I I don't I, I have a hard time verbalizing that but I'll sit down and write it and I'll write it out and be like I don't understand this and I don't understand this and I can't why are you doing this and you know and it just and I've, I've learned you know from again from reading the Psalms is like that is not intimidating to God he's not sitting up there going how dare you <laughs> how dare you talk to me like this Right? Um, and he invites us to, to come to him in, in all of that. Um, and the cool thing is, is that you, when you do that, when I do that at least, when I, I get to the end of it and I get to the, even so, yeah. right? And, and, and I'm able to turn back to him and say, I'm going to trust you because I, I don't have anyone else to trust. I can't trust myself. 
and I can't trust anybody else around me. You know, I come back to, God, you're, you're what I've got. You're the faithful one. Um, but I think some of it, you know, it, I think it's good to go through that and, and vent, you know, what's going on in our hearts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, part of what I love about being on a panel is you never have to have the comprehensive answer. <laughs> yeah. Like you get to just add the pieces and parts that seem most relevant at the moment. And so there were three quick things that came to mind for me. Um, and the one is the one that the guys in my men's group get the most frustrated with me for saying over and over again. Um, ask God. Ask God. Um, but one of the things that I've learned in that time is usually when things aren't going well, I want to ask the question, why? God, why is this happening? And I've learned over time to start asking, God, what are you after? What are you after in this? And, and it's such a reorienting question when he b begins to respond, either as you're reading through the scriptures and you're just asking that question, like, God, God, what are you after right now in the midst of this? Or just in your prayer time, as you're then incorporating the second piece, which I love that you said, Mike, it's just being honest. Right? Not, not trying to hide it from God that you're royally pissed or that you're just heartbroken. Not faking it with him because he already knows. Like, you're not tricky. You're not fooling him. Right? This isn't a surprise to him. Um, and it reminds me of the third thing, which, um, you know, in the Gospels, Jesus gets the news that John the Baptist has been killed. And he tries to go away to grieve. But the crowds followed him. And what follows is this moment where he puts his grief on pause for a second. And you have this, you have this moment that gets immortalized as the feeding of the 5,000. Or he's, he's willing to pause his grief and he's willing to serve for a moment and miraculous things take place. But then after the people are sent away, he sends the disciples on out into the boat and he goes up and he spends the night with God. And he gets his time to process, to have that self-care that he so desperately needed. He doesn't put it off indefinitely. He doesn't just knuckle down and I'll just, I'll serve my way out of the, I'll serve my way out of my, right? He takes the time to take care of his heart in a way that's needed. And the aftermath is he catches up to the disciples by walking on the water and out of his fullness, then invites Peter out of the boat into a new miraculous experience, right? Something special happens when we're willing to take care of ourselves in the midst of our grief and be honest about it. I have no further comment, Your Honor. <laughs> if I could add one, that was good. Um, I can't remember who said it. I don't remember, it was one of you two guys about, um, you know, what you're, in the midst of this, these, like, what are you filling your mind and your heart with? Because the things that you fill your mind and your heart with would be the things that begin to come out of you. It's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. And, um, you know, are you spending all of your time staring at your, at the problem? Or are you spending your time looking at, 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 at Christ? You know, are you, are you, with an unveiled face, beholding his glory and allowing it to transform you? Um, and, and, and because it, it happens without us having, we don't have, it's not a checklist, like I'm going to do this, 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 and this. But as we spend our time abiding, it begins to flow out of us in the way that we live, um, the way that we think about life. Thank you. All right, so another question. It says, um, the comment... The birth of a vision, the death of a vision, the resurrection of a vision. 
uh, that cycle of moving forward and then kind of God taking it down and then kind of something perhaps different arising. Can, is there something in your life that you can kind of see that particular cycle in relationship to everything that we're talking about this weekend? Um, okay, I guess I'll, I'll start first this time. Uh, when we were in Brazil, um, we'd started our ministry to at-risk kids in this one particular neighborhood, and we were working out of a little tiny church that was like a garage door thing, a garage door church, you know, you kind of open up the doors, and you know, we could work with maybe 50 kids there, we just had to block the streets off, it wasn't ideal by any stretch of the imagination, but we're like, the Lord wants us to start, he wants us to start here, we're not waiting, we're going to do it. And in the, on the edge of the neighborhood was a, uh, what was built to be a community center, it was a good piece of land that had a little building in the middle of it, but the thing had been abandoned for years. The windows were all broken out. Everything had been stolen out of it. All the electrical wiring for the copper and everything was gone. Uh, you know, they were like, they would go in there. Homeless people would go in there and build fires and live in there. People were using drugs in there. Uh, you know, prostitutes were taking people in there. It was, it was a disaster. It was an eyesore. And um, we got this, you know, I, I felt, and I do, I do now, <laughs> feel, also feel like I think it was confirmed, but I felt like, you know, maybe the Lord wants us to redeem this place. You know, we're... You don't just disciple people. You, you sort of are discipling this whole community, and maybe we can redeem this building. And we got, um, we got, we went out and did a, a, a what do you call that when you get a bunch of signatures on a paper? A petition. Thank you very much. Um, it's like a game. Uh, we went out and got, a, we went and got signatures from everybody in the neighborhood. All these people like, yes, yes, yes. You know, because the ministry had been in the neighborhood long enough. They knew who we were. They liked what we were doing with the kids. It was bringing life to the community. They're like, yeah, yeah, we'd love that. You know, you guys can take that thing and clean it up and fix it. It'll be yours. And so we went through this whole big thing, and we, I was just convinced. I'm like, this is what the Lord has. Like, this is the vision. We're going we're gonna to be in that building. It's going to be amazing. And we went through this whole thing, and I took the, the petition to the mayor, and the mayor's like, yes, this, this is great. And, you know, he's thinking I'm getting a problem off my plate. And he sends it off to his lawyer. His lawyer comes back, and he says, there's nothing I can do. I can't give it to you because it doesn't belong to the city. The building and the property belongs to the community. The only people that can give it to you are the community association. I said, great, well, where's the community association? He said, that's the problem. Uh, the community association has not, uh, they, they lapsed and they, there is no community association. And I'm like, so the, who's the person to talk to? He said, there is no one to talk to. It's in no man's land, this building is just, and I'm like, I'm like, but no, I'm thinking, I'm like, but, but no, but God said this was, this, this, this was where we were gonna be. Like, I don't understand what's going on. And I just was like, kind of threw my hands up. I'm like, Lord, I have no idea what you're doing. I have no idea what you're doing. This was so clear. And I took some of the guys that volunteered with us, and we kind of did a prayer walk around the neighborhood and, and just praying. And I was not really, I mean, I was just upset. And we end up at the last place we're going to pray. We're standing there looking at this disaster of a building. And I'm like, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but I'm putting it in your hands. And this vision, this dream that I had for this just died right there. I put it in the ground, and I said, okay. And I didn't even, you know, I left it, and we went on, disappointment and all. About, I don't know, maybe eight months later, I get a phone call and from a guy in the neighborhood, and he says, listen, um, a bunch of us in the neighborhood were so angry that you guys didn't get the building that I went and saw a lawyer, and we figured out what we needed to do to reconstitute the homeowners association. So we've reconstituted the homeowners association. He's like, I haven't seen you in the neighborhood in a while, but we've, we've raised money to fix the building. 
Uh, we were fencing the building in. We're getting the yard. We're in all this. And they, he's like, and when we're done, we would like for you guys to come back here and run your ministry out of the building. You don't have to pay for anything. You don't have to pay for rent. You don't have to pay for upkeep. We'll do all of that stuff. We'll just give you the keys, and you just use it whenever you want to use it. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, okay. So you, the, vision, the vision resurrected, and I didn't have to spend a dime of ministry money on it, and uh, we're still there to this day. Uh, so you heard from, if you were here yesterday, then you heard from my story, that my vision for my life, uh, as soon as I got into ministry was basically that I would be American church youth ministry famous, which is a very small pond, uh, but I wanted to own it. Uh, I wanted, and I wanted to own it immediately. Um, and, uh, and so that was really, I mean, it was like, what, what do you want to do? What do you want to be for your life? And I was like, I want to be like, well-known, like I want to be famous, um, and uh, and so, you know, that inc- basically involved, like, getting landing a job at a gigantic church, right? That's like, you do that, and then you're platformed eventually, and you're speaking at conferences and all that kind of stuff. And so that was a really big part of, of what I wanted. Um, and then, uh, so I, you know, shared my story, got a job on an interview at, a, you know, my dream church down south, and then um, that interview, you know, it was, it was close, but ultimately they went with an in-house hire uh, for the position. Um, and and honestly, I thank the Lord because I wasn't ready for that. Uh, that would have been horrible. Um, and then after that, but I was I knew I wanted out of the church I was at, and so it was like, well, now I'm look if that church wants me, if they are even close to wanting me, then I don't have to work at this crap hole. I can go anywhere, right? I can I'm gonna I'm gonna go find somewhere to go. I don't have to be here if I'm unhappy here and they're not treating me well. Um, and so I uh, I wound. Up up interviewing at um, another church. You know, the, the first church was tens of thousands. This church was slightly smaller, but still tens of thousands. Um, I was going to work at one of their locations and do the youth ministry thing and got down to the final process of the interview. I'm like, this is it. I'm going to be at this church, big church, you know, opportunities down the road, can be in youth ministry for the next 25, 30 years at this church, just kind of shifting around campuses, overseeing the whole thing, you know, all that kind of stuff. And uh, in final interview, you know, we've they've taken, you know, $1,000 out of their budget to fly me out and all that crazy stuff. And they asked me in the final interview, like, you know, do you believe you can lose your salvation? And I said, no. Uh, and they said, I don't know how nobody asked you this question before, but based on your answer, we can't hire you here. <laughs> um, you have to believe that you can lose your salvation. I was like, I, that doesn't feel like a primary theological standpoint, but the, it was for them. Um, and so that job did not work out. And, you know, so now um, I'm down two jobs. And, and so now I'm still stuck at this church trying to figure out a way out. And then there was a slightly, a smaller, but still pretty big church um, that uh, brought me out. And it was down between me and one other person. And they went with the other person based on the other person being, you know, five, six, seven years older than me and having more experience and all that kind of stuff. And so then there was one more church, and it was this no-name church in Ashburn called CFC. Uh, and, <laughs> and, you know, I'd, I'd grown up in Ashburn, graduated from Stonebridge, and so I knew CFC. I was familiar with CFC and, and had gone to their youth group a little bit as a kid and didn't want to come home. Uh, had no interest in coming back home to Ashburn. That sounds bad. Um, and, and yet here I go. And so for me, it's this death of, like, I almost had it all. At 22 years old, I almost had it all, right? I'm, I'm, this is it. And now I find myself back home, right? Back home, my wife and I put our, jo- our, our house on the market. In Char- we were in Charlottesville at the time. We put our house on the market. And putting our house on the market, it didn't sell for forever, like a year and a half. And so we are 
22 and 23 years old, we can't afford to, bu- you know, buy another house, right? Like we, we, I don't know how we managed to buy that one. Um, and so we're, I'm 23 years old now. I'm at this church back home that is not a mega church, and I'm back home and I'm living in my parents' house. And this is not right. This is the death of a vision. Like this is not. I was supposed to be like fast tracked to uh, ministry providence. And so I'm at CFC, and the Lord knows what he's doing, and so I'm at this church, and lo and behold, like, just because there's not a, a, a household name for a pastor or a ministry that has, you know, international scope and reach, uh, doesn't mean that the Lord doesn't work there, because I'm now finding myself healing from all of the church wounds that I had at my last place, and so I'm healing, and I'm, I'm growing, and I'm learning, and, um, and that was the death of that vision, and then the Lord just... Gosh, so right around the time I got into a men's group with John right next to me, and all, all at the same time, I start like leaning and asking this question of like, well, what does the gospel mean for me right now, right? And so I start kind of this faith deconstruction thing, but the question isn't, does God exist? The question is, does the gospel matter? Like, I know it matters for like when I go to heaven, that's awesome, but like right now, right, as I'm eating my bowl of Cheerios, does it matter? And... This led me to this entire faith paradigm shift that is mentioned in my bio, but I haven't talked about a lot yet because that's not what we're talking about today. But, um, but this, this whole like gospel lens thing, seeing life through the lens of the gospel, this, this whole paradigm shift, and I, I, it leads me eventually toward being a 25-year-old no-name youth pastor. I don't have name recognition by any stretch of the imagination. I haven't done a whole lot on a national scale, but God's like, hey, you should launch your own curriculum. I'm like, that's for the giants to do, right? You you build prominence, and then based on your name recognition, you launch a brand. Everybody knows that. God says, no, this is what you're supposed to do, and so that's what I did. Um, and, and and so I mean I mean year three of that I mean you know that was you know a couple years ago I mean year three of that and um, you know it's it's one of those things where it was the death of a vision I want to be famous right and and then the birth of the vision like I want. <laughs> I want kids, I want middle and high school students to know that there is a different way to see life. And that when you see life through the lens, when your internal narrative is heavily influenced by the gospel narrative rather than your wounds or your past or your personality or, or your sin bent or whatever, that it's a better way to live, right? And that there's a way to teach uh, for youth pastors, a way to write. And so it, it was just, it was this incredible death of a vision, birth of another vision, and lo and behold, um, God has taken me on a journey through where now I'm starting to see this pathway toward a much healthier version of the influence that I wanted when I was 22, right? When I was 21, 22 years old. And now I'm well on my way toward that pathway of national influence in the world of youth ministry, only it's not about me anymore. And so I feel like that was a great example of that. It was the death of a vision, a really unhealthy, self-centered, prideful vision, and then God bringing me on a healing journey where I then wind up uh, starting to experience a much healthier version of that based not on what I want for me and my platform, but based on wanting kids to know the gospel at a much deeper level. So that's my story. I've got a couple that are coming to mind, but I think the one that I want to share is, uh, it was like the classic suburban vision. That, that was the one that I had. Uh, it was one I grew up with because I was suburban born and raised. I lived all over the country, but it was always the suburbs. So it's just, it's what I knew. And so after my first marriage fell apart, um, I managed to hit the bottom of the housing market 
and bought the cheapest place I could find in Sterling and st- could still barely afford and lived there for 10 years and was so frustrated because, I, like I told you, you know, I was measuring myself based on the externals. And so where I was living was not a source of pride and joy for me. And so I'd go walking with my dogs um, and I'd, I'd look at, you know, I'd look at everybody else's house. A couple blocks over, you had to get out of my neighborhood first. But a couple blocks over, look at everybody else's house. And I started eyeballing the place like, that's where I want to be next. That's my vision. That's my dream. That's where I'm going. And it was a few years after Brooke and I got married. And it was a few years into this sort of rediscovery of who God was and who God could be in our life. And we were sitting on the couch one night. And she looks at me and she's like, I feel like... I feel like God just showed me a picture of what our life could look like. And there was land. And there's like an old farmhouse. And something in me went, holy crap, I didn't even know I wanted that. Like, like I'm a suburb, like, I don't know anything about anything other than the suburbs. Like, I don't know how to function in an urban environment, and I don't know how to function in the sticks, right? But all of a sudden, it, it instantly killed a vision and birthed a vision in that moment of, that's what I want. And so we began this process of trying to find land that we could afford on two teacher salaries in Loudoun County. And then we tried to find land we could afford on one teacher salary in <laughs> Loudoun County. And you can imagine where it feels like this vision, this dream is going, right, right down the toilet. And it felt like, God, what the heck, man? You drop a vision like this and then poop on it? Like, come on, man. I'm asking those why questions again, right? Instead of, you know, what are you after? And, and then all of a sudden, after like years of waiting, we see this listing for a place. It's stunning. It's absolutely stunning. It's not in Loudoun County, um, but it's stunning. And it felt like the invitation was, go look at it. Oh my God, we can't, we can't even remotely afford this. Us and three of our closest friends couldn't afford this. What, what do you mean go look at it? It's like, go look at it. So we go and look at it. It's like 150 acres. It's like 200-year-old farmhouse, beautifully restored. We walk up. The realtor had to be like, you're joking, right? Like, I see the clothes you're wearing in the car you pulled up in. Like, ain't no way. But they showed us the house. And the whole time, I'm like, God, this is incredible. What are you? Is this? And he's like, just wait. Nothing happened. <laughs> Nothing. I'm like, oh, maybe somebody's going to send us a really big check. No. Nothing. And so years go by, and I'm like, seriously, this vision sucks. Can I just go back to my old dead vision? Because right now my old dead vision seems quasi-attainable, and I'll settle for a mostly dead vision that's attainable. And a couple years ago, this was how half-hearted we'd become after years of searching. My wife types into Google, not a realty website, mind you. No, 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 just into Google, houses for sale with land in Loudoun County. That was how half-hearted the attempt was. In the time it took her to click search, I went to the bathroom. By the time I walked back, she had found a house, clicked on it, a realtor had called and said, hey, I could show you the house today if you want. I wasn't in the bathroom that long. <laughs> and we go see it. It's a train wreck. It's an absolute train wreck of a house. Like there was a stack of realtor cards this thick on the kitchen counter of people that had gone to see it because the listing pictures did not do it justice, and I don't mean it in the good way. 
and they just never came back. And we went to see it, and there was something in us that went, I think this is our house. But we didn't say that to each other until we got back in the car. When we got back in the car, we looked at each other, and we're like, I think this is our house. And then we looked at each other, and we're like, are you out of your mind? Because I think I'm out of my mind. We've been there two and a half years now. It still looks a little bit like a train wreck. There hasn't been a single day of buyer's remorse. And this isn't actually about the house. Because while God was after fulfilling this vision and this promise of a place, he was after the restoration of our hearts. I was a scared 30-something-year-old man still living out of my fear as an unfathered, immature child, trying to fake my way through life out of my self-sufficiency. I have come to know who I am in my own little frontier in a way that I never could have any place else. And God had to call me out of my comfort and had to call me out of every place that I thought I knew. And I have a tractor. I have a John Deere tractor. I'm not talking about a riding mower, a, a legit tractor. It's insane. I am not who I was because of this vision that died and then was given and then was suffered through and is now still in the process of being lived. And it's awesome. They've said enough. I'm good. <laughs> what Mike said. Appreciate that, guys. Um, one of the passages, as was mentioned this weekend, is Second Timothy 3.12, talking about those who follow Christ will suffer persecution. And the question is, have you ever experienced persecution on some level, and how did you handle it, and what did you do? So I think the persecution that they experienced in first century Christianity is probably almost inherently different than what most of us are going to experience because um, we're not, just, we like to complain, but the truth of the matter is we're not being like chased down and beaten by the government and all who support the government, right? So it is inherently going to be a little bit different, but here I, I will say there has been wrong done against me. I mean, this is something I shared at, at uh, in small groups last night with my boys back there, but... Um, and in, 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 I was walking in truth and walking out the gospel. And so uh, I'm going to try to make this story concise. But, uh, you know, when you're catching people up on life details, it's hard to, like, succinctly. So um, essentially what happened was that about five years ago, my wife and I, um, we had two kids at the time who were, I don't know, they were I guess they would have been, like, two and one or something like that. Um, but we... Uh, there was a kid in our youth ministry who was in seventh grade, a seventh grade girl. And uh, when we went away to summer camp with her, we didn't really know her very well. But over the course of summer camp, as tends to happen at youth trips, you get to know these kids and you start to hear their story. When we heard her story, we were troubled, deeply so, like we need to call CPS troubled. Um, and so that's exactly what we did. Uh, we called CPS. We said, hey, we want you to look into this family. We think that this girl's single mother is not treating her very well at home. We wound up getting involved with the family, getting to know the mother, getting to know the mother and her couple of kids. And, and then there was the teenage girl 
girl that she was also, you know, she had two. And um, we kind of became their support system, me, Anna, our two uh, little babies. Um, and we're kind of their go-to, um, which was helpful for her because as a single mother, she already needed a support system. But as far as single mothers go, this particular mother had a lot of mental issues going on as we came to find out. And so we, there were times, you know, the, the kid is getting in trouble. She's getting suspended from school. She's run away a bunch of times. And she's just, things are just not going well. And she's just a really unhealthy human being, developing and growing into a very unhealthy human being. And so she comes. She'll spend the night at our house every once in a while. She'll, she'll come over after school. Uh, we try to, you know, take her out, you know, every couple of weeks, you know, to go to McDonald's and talk about life and all that kind of stuff. When she gets sent to the mental hospital because she had a blow up at home and pulled a knife on her mom, we are the ones who go and visit her at the mental hospital so that she can have company and visitors and stuff like that. And so we're just, we're doing our very best with our limited capacity at, I don't know, 24 and 25 years old or however we were, how old we were to like basically borderline parent this teenage girl so we do that for a couple of years and uh and then over the course of those couple of years we called cps so many times on mom because this just wasn't a fit home like it just wasn't a good environment and we felt like cps your job is to step in and do something about this and it never happened unfortunately um but one of the times unfortunately uh mom caught wind of the fact that cps was called on her by us and so now she's angry with the with the youth pastor and the youth pastor's wife and so what we didn't realize was that in her anger, at some point, she reached out to a friend of hers, and they were chit-chatting about me and about Anna and about our role in their family's life. And she said to her friend, oh, yeah, well, we're real. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I am not. I hate them. They're the worst because that youth pastor touched my daughter. No, no, that did not happen, right? But that's what she told this woman, her friend. So this friend eventually tells my pastors at CFC, right? my people, right? Hey, uh, I think it's something you should know about, you know? Uh, this is something that's being said. And so then they come to me about it. I'm like, that just didn't happen. That's just not true. Uh, and they're like, we know. We figure she's probably lying. Um, but, uh, but out of the overflow of this, you need to not have contact with this family anymore. Like, you need to be you need to basically be done. Like maybe Anna can have some contact with this, but you need to take a step back because this can't be, you can't be involved in this if this is how it's going to go, right? So I feel like that was a situation where all my wife and I did was try to love this kid and support this mother, granted, while also trying to do what we felt was healthy for the entire family, which is get this kid and maybe even the other kids out of this house. This is just... Like, you just don't have the capacity, mom, to take care of these kids. You just don't have it. Um, and so we're just trying to do what's right and live out the gospel. And what we get for that is an accusation of sexual assault against a teenager. So I feel like for me, right, that was, that's a really good example of like, again, it's not, the, it's not quite persecution. It's not, hey, because you're a Christian, I'm going to, but it definitely was like, we do right by somebody and they repay us with evil. And so I feel like out of the overflow of that, I don't, what was the end of that question? What persecution, but then? Great. Okay. Awesome. Love it. Thank you. So, so uh, for, for me, the way that I handled that, and we talked about this in, in our small group last night, um, 
the important thing for me coming out of that was to recognize the lies that the enemy wanted to speak to me about that situation, which in, in some form or another, the lie, what the core lie was basically, uh-huh, that's what you get. That's what you get when you try to help people. You try to do, go the extra mile. You try to live out the gospel toward people. You try to do that. Uh-huh, you're going to get burnt. Don't do that again. You just stay nice and safe with your fit, right? And so that was kind of the core lie being spoken. And it was important for me in that moment to recognize the lie, go, that's a lie, and then uh, accept the truth. Heal, certainly, my feelings matter. I need to feel my feelings on that. But heal recognizing the truth of the gospel, what God has done, even though that situation didn't go the way I expected it to, that, that the pain and the turmoil that we experienced did not, it's not returning void, right? To take from John's story, right, earlier this morning, there were some things in me that needed to die in that whole saga of my life led to the death of those things, right? There were some things in me that needed to be birthed, that needed to come alive, one of them being compassion, right? I'm an introvert. I could go weeks without talking to anybody, basically, right? And so, like, to, to have a kid who's not in my family be so much a part of my family, and for that kid to be such a problem kid, too, at that, requires so much energy, it was healthy for me. It was good for me to be challenged and to, lo- to need to love somebody outside of my individual circle. That would have never happened, I, I believe, if I hadn't gone through that. And, and that's what the, a gospel lens shares with me, and so I'm able to stay healthy and still, should an opportunity arise in the future, where I can help kids, where I can bring a kid into our home, and I know that in our home, we have the capacity to handle that. It's going to be a healthy decision for our home, like I don't have to live with the fear of doing that because I know that the enemy is a liar and I know that the gospel equals freedom. And so I can continue to walk in the path that God lays out for me without being afraid that what happened in the past is going to happen again. So that's what happened. That's kind of my story of persecution. I don't know. So much, but persecution. I agree with Mike that, you know, I think the persecution we face today is very different than uh, what what you see in the first century, um, but I can I mean I can vividly remember half a dozen different times different stories where people just like absolutely laughed at me um, and not at the hey because you told a funny joke but just mo- laughed mocked mocked me for uh, being a follower of Jesus I mean uh, I was at uh, I was in uh, Panama City Beach Florida with a with a group from Crew when I was in college. Um, and it was over spring break, and we had a kind of a conference that we were, we were at. And, but one night, me and a couple of my buddies were like, oh, let's go out and share Jesus with people, okay? Well, going and trying to share Jesus with a bunch of drunk college students, <laughs> well, that could have been part of our problem there. Um, but we, I, I don't even know what possessed us to do half the stuff we were doing, but just, um, but we were, we were there, and we're, uh, um, we were in this kind of like strip motel, you know, a roadside motel sort of place, and we're talking to this, you know, there's all these people just hanging out, drinking, and whatever. Um, and we're talking. I'm talking to this one guy, and he's like, whoa, 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 so you're a Christian, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, you believe, like, what the Bible says, right? I'm like, yeah. I'm like, where's this going? Kind of this fear that's coming to me. And... Um, and he's like, so, so does that mean you don't have sex with girls? I was like, well, yeah, I, you know, I have, you know, I have a girlfriend, but I don't have sex. And he's like, 
like, like, are you, are you like a virgin? And I'm like, yeah, okay. And then, like, and there's this swimming pool area, and there's all these people around there, and he just yells at the top of his lungs. <laughs> everyone, hey, everybody, you won't believe it. This dude over here is a virgin. And, and just, like, just totally mocking me in front of everyone. And, um, and well, there's, the story goes on. We won't go into any more of that. Um, <laughs> but, you know, in, in that moment... You know, as as I'm sitting there and as, as I'm thinking about that, there's part of me that was like that wants to be like angry, right? You guys are idiots. You don't even realize what you're doing and the consequences. Blah blah blah. blah. Like there's the there's this side of me that wants to give him all like the spiritual answers. Of, this is what's wrong with what you're doing, and I'm better than you because I'm following the Lord. But as I left that conversation with him God God just broke my heart with a heart of compassion I was sitting around all these people and like this is this is what you think the world is all about this is what you think life is all about you're gonna look back wow those are the best best times when we did it and God just bro- broke my heart with a heart of compassion uh, for them and and I had the same uh, a couple people um, when I left uh, the business world and started working here at RBC, just were like, are you crazy? You're an idiot. You're a fool. Um, I can't believe you. Like, how are you going to provide for your family? And all these different things. And, and hearing, those, hearing those different things, there's part of me that, that wants to defend it and get right, self-righteous. But don't you know what I'm doing? For you know, How holier am I than you? That, that's the natural response that I want to have when people are mocking me. Uh, this is going to work out better for me. You just, uh, God gave me, again, just a heart of compassion for them. Um, just so, so that, man, what, man, because you're, you're spending your life, you're living for something that I know won't last. And, you're, and it, just, it just broke my heart as, uh, as, as I transitioned out of that job. It just, Again, I guess that's my response to different times of just being mocked for being a follower of Jesus Christ. It, it just seems that as I initially, I, I kind of have a shock to it, but then it, my heart breaks with a compassion for him. Um, I'll just add one thing to that. The four of us sitting up here will probably most likely never suffer the kind of persecution that even a lot of you guys may already have or will in your workplace. Um, we all work at a church. <laughs> like everybody we work with is a believer. We're only persecuted if we don't believe what we believe, right? I mean, that's um, and the persecution is like, okay, you can't work here anymore. So we don't face what a lot of you guys face out there in the public sector. That's the first thing I just want to recognize, you know. And more and more, and more and more, the public sector is becoming hostile, more hostile to believers. Um, and so I get that and. You know, uh, again, when we were in Brazil, a lot of the work that we do with kids, we would do in the schools. Um, and most of the schools there would see the work that we were doing in their community, and they would just be like, please, you know, we need help. Here's the keys to our school. Use the school. Use the school building. Come in here anytime you want, you know. But we definitely encountered officials in the schools. We encountered officials in the city government that were not believers and had it out to, to try to derail us, to try to take us out of the, you know, to, to remove us from 
the schools, to remove us from the public square. I mean, they were doing whatever they could do to try to get rid of us. Um, and what I, what I, the only way I could deal with it, the only way I figured to deal with it, it was ju just to be faithful to do the things that God called us to do and to not respond in kind um, to attacks. You know, it was literally, you know, you think about turning the other cheek um, or you think about what Jesus said, you know, blessed are those who are, are persecuted. Not, not everybody who's persecuted, but people who are persecuted for his name's sake. Right? And so to, to look at it and go, okay, you know, am, am I being persecuted because I'm a jerk or am I being persecuted because of Jesus? Because if it's the latter, that's good and I should rejoice because they did the same to the prophets before me and I can just love this person back. I can keep doing what we're doing and let God sort all that other stuff out um, uh, and just stand firm. All right, thank you. Um, it says, how should a younger couple search for an older couple to mentor them and help them walk through some of the unexpected times uh, as, couple, as a couple and as parents? Uh, what should the couple expect from a mentor couple? I just wanted to thank you for reading my question. I really appreciate that. Yeah. <laughs> if you go to Rest in Bible Church, if go you to restinbible.org like slash and family life mentor and read and follow the prompts. No. Uh, yes, I mean, there's the, you know, if you're in community, right, then you're going to be around other believers and you will be able to see and witness the marriages of other couples that are maybe further along down the road than you are and be observant and, you know, is this a marriage that from my vantage point looks like it's, it's a healthy marriage, not a perfect marriage because those don't exist, but, you know, be on the lookout. So that's one way to do it sort of organically. You can, if you go to RBC, you can come to Homefront and at Homefront you're going to have marriages of every age and stage conceivable that are all there sitting around round tables like this, having conversations with each other about marriage, about family. Um, great place to, to meet a couple that you might think, hey, you know, I, we kind of click. I'd like to spend some time with them. Um, again, if you go to Rest in Bible Church, I wasn't kidding, at restinbible.org slash family life mentors. Uh, we actually have probably 25 couples now, older couples that have been vetted and trained to meet with younger couples. Now, do those always click? Um, no, but you know, if it doesn't click, it's like a dating service. We just move on and try again. Um, it's okay. So there are some, you know, I'm a fan of the organic. <laughs> like I think that the things, you know, I, I like that because that's my generation. Um, but I also think that, you know, it, connecting through something that's set up to help facilitate that is also good. Um, the kinds of things you can expect. Don't expect that you're, um, you know, that this couple is going to be your saviors, that they're going to be uh, your counselors in the sense of like, you know, the mentor and counselor, you know, a lot of times mentors sometimes give counsel, but not all mentors are counselors. And so thinking of them in that way I think is probably a mistake. But think of them as older, as older friends, uh, older friends who have been where you are and that can give you some insight into, you know, what are the pitfalls, um, maybe make you, you know, help you to understand that, you know what, this is not new. The situation that you're in has happened to other people before, um, and there's some comfort in that. Um, so, yeah, that's just a little bit. 
I gotta say personally, this doesn't necessarily sound spiritual, I'm sorry. Um, I really dislike when I, when I come to different events and I hear different testimonies of, of like one mentor couple with their mentee couple and they like get together and they like just gush over each other like, oh, we got to know each other and then we're hanging out all the time and they've been so great to me and they've taught us and we actually get more out of mentoring them than they get out of being mentored by us and, and just... And the reason I get frustrated when I hear about that or different discipleship relationships is they're, they're not all the same, right? And it, it creates this, this expectation that you have of like, wow, you know, you know, all the problems in my life will go away if I just find this mentor couple in my life or if I just had this discipleship relationship or, you know, and they have this great discipleship relationship and I don't have that discipleship relationship. And, but, it's not going to be the same forever. I guess really what I want to say is not going to be the same for everyone. Sometimes you have that mentor relationship and it, that clicks, and other times it 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 doesn't click. Um, and you know, and I can a lot of times I can be like, well, I really need this relationship, whatever, and I ignore the relationships that God has has given given me. I mean, Bob's sitting over there. Okay, um, I've. Grew up in the youth ministry when Bob, and have known Bob, uh, and he's been here at the church since like the dinosaurs roamed the earth, right? And I appreciate him. <laughs> um, but you know, when, you know, when I, when I, I, when I uh, man, there is, there's not this, you know, Bob and I have never had this like formal, well, here's the curriculum that we're going to go through. And, and not, I'm not knocking into the curriculum. Hey, those are great and whatever. Um, but just over, man, of the 20 plus years that I've known Bob, worked with Bob, been his been his friend, man, I just it, it, he's been there for for me in so many so many different areas and different arenas. And it did not match any formula, any testimony that I've ever heard. Um, but. It's how one of the main ways that God has transformed me, shaped, whatever, um, and uh, and I guess I know at different periods in my time, uh, time in my life and in ministry, I was like, well, why isn't this person mentoring me, or why like why why am I not getting this that that or the next thing? And all along, God was like, you know, I I, I put all these other things around you, Aaron, and um, just yeah. Anyway, uh, a couple thoughts on this one. This is this is one of my passions, really, marriage in particular, um, mentorship more broadly. Um, I would say the first one is be honest about what you're looking for, and be honest about what they have to offer. And by that, I mean be honest about what you're looking for. Meaning, you might say you're looking for a marriage mentor, but are you actually looking for a father figure or a mother figure? And if you're not honest about that, you're going to put some expectations on that person that they might actually not be capable of fulfilling. Or maybe they are, but if you're not open about that's what you're really after, it just makes the relationship a little tricky. Um, and then the other half of that, you know, being honest about what they're able to offer. Again, sometimes when we go to a mentor, we want them to mentor us in everything, even if we only went to them for one thing. And so be honest about what they can offer you. Maybe they have a thriving marriage, but their finances are a train wreck, which if you can find that combination, that would be rare. 
But, you know, it's possible for people to offer you the thing that they have without you needing to take everything that they are. It's possible to glean bits from each set of mentors that you learn from without requiring that they be everything to you. The other thought I have along those lines is, and some of this just takes time because it requires an open, honest relationship, but be aware of the distinction between a mentor couple that can mitigate death versus those that can cultivate life. And so what I mean by that is there's a difference between the people that know enough to keep the marriage from ending versus the people that have a thriving marriage, that are living the wisdom. Not just they know about interpersonal communication, not just they understand relationship dynamics, but then you still you see them and there's just there's something missing. Right? There's a difference between mitigating the death of a marriage that might otherwise collapse without tips and techniques and a marriage that is actually cultivating life, that is living the wisdom that they've learned. You mentor people. Don't you dare skip this one. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So, so as, as you can see, I'm 16 years old. Um, but my wife and I but do... But we got married at 16. We've been married for about 30 days now. So, uh, my wife and I, we do... We have done and are currently doing premarital counseling with some people. And so, um, yeah, I think the, the biggest thing... Um, the biggest thing that we have found being on the other side of that and mentoring young couples um, is that if you want to go into that you have to go in like willing to be like very, very honest and which is hard to do, you know, because if you're going to somebody who you respect, then you don't want them to know that you're a mess. Um, but you, you nothing changed. You know what I mean? Like you can talk, you can present the best front that you want to, but if you're not willing to open up about the things that are really bothering you, right, then you are going to leave that session and continue to spew wounds all over your spouse or partner or whatever. So um, I think that that's been a really important thing that we've discovered is you just have to be willing to look bad in front of your mentor. Um, and if you're not willing to do that, then you need to work on that vulnerability thing, right? I, you and God need to talk about the vulnerability aspect before you go and seek out a mentor. So, And I would say all of y'all that are further along in the marriage road, one of the best things you can do for your marriage is to mentor a younger couple. Um, you know, my wife and I do premarital counseling, and we've probably, over the past few years, 15 couples a year, ish, um, and we take them through premarital counseling, best thing for our marriage. We basically are going through premarital counseling ourselves over yeah. and over and over and over yeah. again. So good. Um, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and that's not, I mean, that's just like sit-down counseling stuff, and then there's all of the just walking alongside younger couples, having them over for dinner, going over to their place, um, just spending time together uh, with younger couples, revitalizes your own marriage. The pouring out, you know, don't you don't want to be a Dead Sea marriage, right? That's just getting getting fed all the time, it's got no outlet, you need to find an outlet uh, for your marriage. Um, it'll bless others, it'll bless you too. There was a follow-up question. So John, do you define a mentor versus a father or mother figure? Oh, that's a great question. Um, mentor versus father or mother figure. Um, you can be a little bit loose with the terms, but I think in particular, a mentor is something that you're trying to get a particular thing from. So topically, like I, I need somebody to mentor me in getting in better shape, 
right? Because I'm, I'm 39 now, and some of the joints are achy, and I thought about playing volleyball this afternoon. I'm just not sure what the body's going to do now, right? So finding a, a guy who's a decade ahead of me who's still in great shape, show me how you stay in shape. I don't need your financial advice. I don't need marriage advice. But I need this thing from you, and I see that you have it. Fathering, I think, is a little bit more holistic. It's what each of us hoped that we got from our father's love, validation, a sense of identity, a sense of, I'm in your corner, and you have what it takes, and I will be with you every step of the way. It's sort of irrespective of topic at that point. And that's a much bigger ask to put on someone. But it also doesn't necessarily demand that they bring you all of their wisdom. It's more their presence. John, I have bad news for you. In 11 years, you will be like me and have to bow out of cornhole because your shoulder <laughs> is shot. It's only going to get worse, brother. This was not explained to me. I... <laughs> All right, fellas, this is our last question. Uh, we're kind of going to land the plane pretty much on time here. It says, how can we as a fellowship of believers hold each other up during these difficult times? In other words, what are some of the basic categories of things or what what does the body of christ need to be like and i think it, to me it sounds like this is it's in these times of the unexpected but we live in a world of increasingly unexpected right i think that our world is becoming increasingly more challenging to live in so what what do we kind of what do we need to be about in broader terms to to really be a place where we are uh, holding each other up during these times what are your final thoughts I would say we need to um I'm pretty passionate about the this question actually. I think that um we need to major in the majors and I think it's really easy to major in the minors when there's a lot of minors going on um and they're really emotional minors, you know. Um and so I think as believers we're all created uniquely, we have unique passions. There are different things that are going to um set someone else off that I might not really care about that much um or vice versa. I think it's really important that when you when you see another believer um, majoring in the minors uh, and you can tell that their identity and their sense of well-being is wrapped up in this political issue or this social issue or whatever, right? Um, I think it's important to, in love, particularly if you have a relationship with that person, to point them to, you know what, like, politics is not going to restore the world, right? The restoration of the world doesn't, redemption of the world doesn't come um, through a presidential election um, or through policy. Um, or you've got a social justice issue or a social issue over here. When we see each other majoring in the minors to, um, in a way that's filled with grace, call one another out on that and point each other to the cross. You know, you know that's, that, that is important and we need to figure out how to navigate that as the church and as believers. But that ultimately, um, even if we got that right as a society from a, a social socioeconomic stand, whatever, like governmental standpoint, even if we nailed that, um, that would not bring about the redemption of the world. And so I just think it's important that that's how we hold one another up um, is to like, let's like do our best to not let each other uh, go off the rails and become emotion. Uh, yeah, great moral Christians, but emotionally unhealthy train wrecks uh, walking around triggered all of the time because of the external stuff happening in our world. I think the gospel gives us uh, more to feed off of than that. And so I think we, we need to hold each other accountable to that. Yeah, yeah I'd agree. Um, I think there's an internal and an external that come to mind for me. The internal is get below the waterline with each other. That if all we do is stay above the waterline with the classic new sports and weather trifecta of male conversation topics, 
that doesn't bring about the redemption that Mike was just talking about, right? Because it's not that they don't matter. Again, I'm a social science major. I spent 16 years getting kids to love history and government and economics. I will spend all day on those topics. But at the end of the day, what matters more is how are you doing? And if we're not having those conversations with each other, and if the answers are only, well, how I'm doing is related to all those things above the waterline, then we're not being authentic with each other. Those can't be the core issues of the heart. They can be passions. They can be things that we pursue, but they can't be the core issues of the heart. And then I think the external application of that, um, one of my mentors just recently said this to me, and I thought it was absolutely brilliant, because we were having a conversation in a room full of people that seemed like you would expect them to be ideologically similar. And then we got on a particular topic, and the fireworks started. And I watched him just sort of sit back and let the conversation happen. And at the end of the conversation, when he could tell that some nerves were still rattled and some tempers were still a little flared, he asked the question, what would help us, not collective humanity, but this room full of people, to have conversations like this more effectively? And some people threw out some different things, and most of them were variations on, well, if people would just see it my way, they'd be a whole lot easier. (laughs) And the thing that he offered at the end was, what if we just stayed curious longer? What if we asked questions? When somebody expresses a viewpoint, there's a story behind it. There's not just an opinion. There's a story. There's an experience. What if we stayed curious longer to learn that story, to develop connection, to get below the waterline? It changes the whole paradigm of the conversation, and it changes the paradigm of the relationship. And I watched him do it in that moment, and it changed relationships. And I was struck by that, and I don't think I'll ever forget it. Yeah, the only thing I think I would add to those two would be that you know, we can't neglect the gathering together um, because those kinds of things only happen in environments where we're gathered. Um, you know, if we're to, you know, if you look at the, the command, right, we used to have a whole bunch and then we went down to two, love God, love your neighbor. And then Jesus said, okay, here, let's, let's just love one another as I've loved you. I'm going to raise the bar really high, but I'm going to give you just one rule. And, you know, and then, then of course in the new Testament, we have all that, you know, broken out for us in the one another's. Like, how do, we, how do we love? Well, we bear, we bear one another's burdens. We pray for one another. We forgive one another. We exhort one another. We encourage one another, right? All of those one another's only happen when we're with one another. Um, and I think more and more, this, like, there is nobody else. Like, you don't find this anywhere else. You might find a group of guys sitting together, a group of people sitting together, you know, at, at, the, at, the, at a Rotary Club meeting, but they're not having these conversations, um, it, this isn't happening. And so we can't neglect the gathering together. That would be my one add-on to that. You know, I, I think it's really easy for me when I, um, when I look at all the stuff that's going on in the world or I hear different situations. We have a list as a staff 
uh, of people we're praying for in our congregation that are dealing with different medical issues and you know, hard situations. I just look at it. I'm like, or I look at it at my students. Or I just look at it like, God, there are too many issues out here, right? And because there's just too many issues, I'm like, I don't want to do any of them. I don't want to help. You know, I don't know if that ever happens when you have like your to-do list of things. Like my to-do list is so long, I just don't want to do any of them. Um, and so I, I feel like it kind of, kind of answering that that question. It's like, or for me, it's like, Lord, there's there are way too many students for me to reach out to. There are way too many messes going on around. Um, and I just say, Lord, I, I, need, I need your help to, to figure out what, it, what is it that you want me to help with today, right? I cannot solve all the world's problems. I cannot end, uh, I'm going to get in political and social topics. Like, I can't deal with all of those problems. But what's the one or two, three that you want me to deal with today? Um, in, you know, in two weeks... Uh, I'll be in, uh, Lord willing, in, in central Haiti. Um, there's a ministry that my, we, RBC, has partnered with for uh, eight or so years. I've been down uh, 15 plus times there. And it's like, I cannot solve all people, you know, I can't solve all of, all of Haiti's problems, but there's this one school, church, and orphanage that I've been to a bunch of times. And that's where God has called me to, to impact and to, to minister, to care for, do what I can there uh, in Haiti. And same with the, my junior high students. I can't deal with every problem, but there's a few every year that the Lord just said, Aaron, this is where I want you to get involved in. Um, and um, and, and when, I'm that, when I'm involved with it, yeah, I want to be all in. Um, and I, I think the last thing that I would, I would share as it relates to you know really being there, piggybacking on what Mike is telling about gathering together, there is just something about physical presence with other people. You know, when they're going through whatever mess that's going on in their life, and just hey, I'll sit with you, whether we're talking or not talking, give you a hug. If you if you're like oh, no touch or so no hugs then, whatever it is, but there is just something about. A physical presence with people. Um, you know, the days that I've been sitting in hospitals, um, going through my own things, and you know, several of you guys here um, have come and sat with me. That means that means the world. Um, and yeah, just a lot of dark moments in in my own life, and that means the that means the world. And one other thing I would I would throw out is you're trying to figure out, you know. Who is it, Lord, that you've put, put you know, that, that I need to be reaching out to? It really struck me. Uh, shortly after my wife was diagnosed with cancer, another guy in our church who had had kind of a similar story with his wife, he re and I had known him for a while, just reached out to me and was like, hey, we should have lunch. And he and I had lunch probably every six weeks for the next few years. Uh, and, you know, because his story was similar. Um, so think through, well, the... These are the things that I'm passionate about. These are the things that the Lord has done in my life. That person is going through something similar. And hey, you know what? Maybe that's where God wants to intentionally, me to intentionally put some effort into being, 
being present with them, reaching out to them, caring, caring for them, hanging out, inviting them over to watch a, I was about to say a Skins game, but whatever. <laughs> they don't exist anymore. Football the, fo the football team game or whatever, whatever it is that you enjoy doing, right? Um, uh, but, you know, who are, who are those people that God has put in your world and on your heart? And how do I, I mean, it, it, it's really weird working with teens right now because um, I feel like there's a lot of times where all I'm doing is teaching l basic life skills. Like, how do you hold a conversation with each other, right? <laughs> like, you wouldn't think this really shouldn't be that hard. Um, but the reason I say that, right, is those are things that we are hardwired and that we need. And just a simple way of you engaging with someone as they're going through whatever's going on in their world, you're just like, hey, well, I, I actually know how to hang out with you and have a 30-minute conversation. That, that just means the world to people. So. All right. Thank you, guys. Will you give our uh, speakers a round of applause?